Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Pixel Drone Show, the show where we talk to industry professionals about how they use their drones. If you're new to the show, be sure to subscribe. We put a new episode out every single Tuesday. And today I'm excited. Our guest is Chris Frank. Chris is the founder and CEO of Unmanned Vehicle Technology. We'll call it UVT going forward. Uh, they're one of the top providers of UAS solutions in the country. And if you're on social media, I'm sure you've seen Chris posting a bunch of very useful information. This is actually how I reached out to Chris. Chris in the first place because I really like the tone of all of his messages on social media. I thought he's always providing really good information. So uh, Chris came to the industry as a former public servant. He's also got an IT background, which helped us this morning a little bit getting the podcast started. And uh, we're very excited to talk today about what's happening in the industry. And uh, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Greg. I appreciate the opportunity and making time this morning and uh, letting me put on my IT hat again there for a minute. That was nice. But yeah, happy to be here and uh, looking forward to helping however I can. Awesome. So before we get into all the details of what you've been doing, can you tell us how you got into drones? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, it was back in, well, I'll, I'll go way back. I've always been a nerd. Uh, I'm not sure if anybody could tell, but I've always been into RC, radio control, computers. Uh, I was the kind of kid that my parents would buy a new laptop and then three days later they'd asked where the laptop was and then they'd find the monitor in one room and they'd find the keyboard in another because I just took it apart because I want to see what was going on. So I've always been really into into technology and uh, started radio control, bought my first, uh, I'm going to call it the first components to make a drone back in 2010, 2011, uh, slowly moved into the Wukong M flight controllers, kind of your your OG story. You know, everybody, I was watching On God's uh, episode and so he, he nailed it, you know, kind of Kind of back in the early days, so started building some Wukongs and finally made my my first big investment into a Phantom Two. Um, and so I had played with the Phantom One, but I really wanted something that I could actually go out and take some photos with. Learned pretty quickly that I would need a better camera, so I velcroed a GoPro to the bottom of it. Long story short, spent a little bit of money on it, and my my wife girlfriend at the time wondered why it was sitting for so long and how I was going to pay for it. And uh, and I said, you know what? I'm going to go out and I'm going to make some money with it because I had just read like one of the first AUVSI articles about how big the industry is going to be. And I was like, you know what? I can do this. So went out and found a construction project. We were in Orlando at the time, took some photos. It was a GoPro with no video feed. So I kind of had to just like spot it like, OK, that, that angle is probably pretty good. It was on interval. So it was just taking photos and I emailed them to the name on the placard and they wanted more. And just kind of blew up into that. Uh, my public safety background, I had some contacts in the area, in the Orlando area. They had some drones, but nobody to support them. So I said, I'll come by and see what I can do. And it just kind of went from there. So now we we sell, we support, we lease, we do fleet, all that kind of stuff. That's pretty amazing. So about, what is it, like nine years ago, you started Unmanned Vehicle Technologies? I mean, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, we uh, I made the plunge and registered it with the government in 2014, but it was kind of in the work since about 2012 is really when yeah. I started actually kind of going out, kind of tap dipping my foot into the waters, kind of see what kind of business I could drum up. So, And so what kind of services do you provide and to what kind of customers? Yeah, so we are what the industry calls a value-added reseller. I'll admit I, I like that term, mostly the first part of it, but I always thought it was a little kitschy. But So we are a value-added reseller in that we do sell hardware, we do sell software, but we also pair that with a very consultative approach. And so we don't just sell the Mavic 2 Enterprise Advance that's on our shelf because it's in stock and because it's sitting on my balance sheet. We, we sell it to the people because they actually need it, whatever that person may be doing, if it's public safety utilities, construction, whatever. Um, and so we sell hardware, we sell software. We also do commercial leasing completely in-house. It's not like the affirm financing or anything. So we we actually do a commercial leasing program in-house to help these agencies get over that CapEx, the approval that they need to spend on all that money. And then we also have a fleet program. I think fleet, fleet for me is what I'm most passionate about. I think it's going to be the next sort of the next hurdle that we have to get over as an industry. These fleets are getting older. These are, the, the fleets are getting larger, more more widespread. So we do some fleet management as well. And then training and consulting. We'll, we'll be ramping up training a little bit more uh, next year. So keep an eye out for some stuff there. But um, but yeah, we, we try to offer just about everything that we can, sort of a drone program in a box. Um, and we just try to find the best solution for, for the job. Um, do you have plans to sell any uh, other products down the line? We, um, do you mean like uh, non-aerial non drone related, I guess? Uh, both, uh, just anything in the future, although we don't know what's exactly coming for drones, but anything that you sure. can think of? 
Yeah, I mean, we, you know, being an IT nerd, we've, I've had some ideas of, of, you know, pairing some cradle point equipment and some network equipment. I, I think ground robotics for us is is kind of, we do it here and there um, as needed, but I think that we, we will offer any complimentary product or hardware or software or service uh, to whatever, whatever that customer needs. So there's nothing is off the table. We have been working over the last 18 months, maybe, maybe even two years now to diversify our product catalog and not just be so heavy with the DJIs and the autels, but bring in the ACE cores and the teal drones and the, those things as well, just to make sure that we have, and even before the, the anti-China thing happened, which I'm presuming will come up at some point in the conversation. But um, even before that, we've been trying to diversify. So really, whatever the customers need, if we can get it reasonably and, and we know it, we can support it, we're going to sell it. Got so how big is your team now? So we have got, uh, gosh, we actually, uh, it's a, I, I won't get too gushy, but it's a big week. My wife now finally works for us. This has always been the dream. So we, she and I are now both uh, working here. So she's our most recent hire. She's actually in training right now. I can see my Slack over there. People are going back and forth trying to help her answer questions while I'm in here. Um, so we've got uh, 12 uh, all in all. So we, uh, myself, Andrew and Matt are the three partners. We're the three owners. And then we've got uh, an awesome team of both remote and uh, on-site personnel here in Fayetteville at our HQ. So we're about 12 strong. Wow, that's awesome. So, uh, how, how, did, uh, how did COVID uh, hurt your business? You know, or did it? It it um, it, it hurt us from a stress level and and from a, just kind of keeping an eye on things and taking it sort of a day at a time approach. We we were incredibly fortunate in that our customers remain loyal and luckily, you know, we are very very heavy in public safety. So you had COVID plus you had defund the police and BLM and all of these big political and society um, sort of milestones happening. So we we remain very fortunate. We we did very well. We continued our growth. Growth was obviously not quite what we expected it to be. Uh, luckily, in 2021, we've we've done pretty well, and the market seems to be recovering. But uh, we we remain healthy and and safe, and uh, I was able to hire a couple people during the pandemic, which I was very grateful and fortunate for the opportunity to do. And they've ended up being, of course, critical critical members of the team. So, yep. so I'm wondering, with the uh, the drone industry growing so fast, and your business uh, sounds like it's growing pretty fast as well, can you tell us where you're currently based, and if you're looking to expand and open up perhaps new locations in the future? Absolutely. Yeah. So our headquarters is in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're just south of uh, Walmart's home office. They're up in Bentonville. We're down here in Fayetteville. So northwest corner of the state. We uh, I, I take no credit, but we happen to be uh, well located because we're central and we can hit each coast within a couple of days from a shipping perspective. We've got I've always been a fan of remote work, even before COVID as an IT guy. I was yeah. always just a big fan of if you have Internet and you have a laptop, you can work. Uh, so I've been hiring people based off of talent, not their individual or physical locations. So we've got a presence currently with some satellite offices and just some remote work, work from home folks in Omaha, Nebraska, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Bridgewater, New Jersey, uh, Belleville, Illinois, which is a St. Louis area, Amarillo, Texas. And then we just brought on um, a guy over in Greensboro, uh, North Carolina. So he'll be, he'll be kind of a field application specialist. So we don't have any big, large brick and mortar presence in those locations. So Fable is our home. Mm -hmm. um, I, me personally, I like the idea of satellite offices, especially in Texas. We do a lot of business in Texas. We support the Texas Rangers and DPS. I would love the idea of having a, a small brick and mortar, even if it's just a service center, somewhere where they could come and drop off their drones to work on it. It's yeah. with COVID and the cost of just commercial space these days. It's just so insane. The The team has decided uh, that we it'd be better to just kind of go there bring the tools and equipment with us and just kind of stay in the area and bounce around to the agency. So I don't, I don't know that we'll expand a whole lot, but we're always looking to bring on uh, field application specialists. We call them FAS outside sales folks that can, uh, that can kind of use their industry knowledge. Like my guy in Greensboro, Robert Marley with Greensboro fire department, um, leveraging those guys because they're, they're used to integrating that technology. They've used that technology. Plus they have a passion for it. They're good friends of ours. Um, and so I think we'll probably expand that way first and then kind of see what that does to build those pockets of business geographically. Yeah, it sounds like you figured out a uh, post-COVID uh, flexible mobile working situation there. Makes sense. <laughs> we certainly have tried. Yeah, it's a it's a day-by-day -day thing, but, but thank you. Yeah. Uh, I live in Grand Rapids, so that's kind of cool. And I recently <laughs> learned that some of the more prominent aviation attorneys are around this area. So... Uh, that's pretty neat. Um, are you excited to get back to trade shows? Um, I should probably know this, but was wondering if you made it out to AUVSI or Commercial Drone Expo this year, and what are your 
plans for the coming year? It's a great question. We we sort of take it. I just got an email this morning about FRI next year. And so we this year we've taken it pretty slow. Um, you know, for us, we we do things differently, but the value that we provide is super hard to to communicate in a booth. Um, you know, we've got an M300 and those guys over there have an M300. Well, we we do these couple of things, but all they see is the same equipment. So for us, the real value is walking the show, talking to folks like you guys, yeah. inter, you know, interfacing with all of our industry contacts, both manufacturers, suppliers, vendors, and customers. So I do think in 2022, we're going to be um, at least walking probably all the big shows. I doubt we'll really have a booth there, but we've always got, I drive a Ford Expedition because I literally pack that thing full of hard cases and things go tumbling around and hitting windows and stuff. So I've always got drones with me if we need to put together something. So I think in 2022, we'll definitely invest more heavily in that, mostly from a networking perspective. But I did not go to uh, exponential or commercial UAV this year, but I, I do plan to next year. Okay, very interesting. Um, I agree with you on the networking part. Um, a lot of my gigs have come from just meeting people organically. Um, and this is maybe a bit of a loaded question, but are there any trade shows, um, especially networking wise, that you think offer the most value of all of them? You know, for... Uh, I'll, I'll speak selfishly first and then kind of as an industry as a whole. So for us, because we have, uh, we're very relationship based, you know, like I said, people don't, we're not an e-commerce store. People don't just buy things from us blindly. We do really well in the regional shows where we can have 40 or 50, 60, maybe a hundred, 150 people there in total. Cause the odds of us being able to hit each one of those during that two or three day period is much better. Provide that value face to face, let them touch and feel the equipment. So for us, we kind of attack that regional thing. I'm, I'm going to be in Kansas State, or I'm going to be at Kansas State University next week, for example, about 60 to 100 attendees there. That's a perfect show for us. We can do a demonstration. We can kind of take it easy, be calm. Oh, we got to break for a keynote. None of that. We can just kind of sit, talk, educate, train, demo, all that kind of stuff. From an industry perspective, I think that Exponential seems to kind of bring together the widest breadth of folks. You see drone in a box and you see robotics and you see all of these these just unmanned related things. Whereas I, I feel like inter-drone commercial UAV, it's it's a lot of the same stuff. It's very heavy on aerial drones and things like that. That said, I haven't been inter-drone or commercial UAV for the last two years. One of those was because of COVID. So um, hopefully yeah. things have changed. But I think any, any conference that can bring together a wide range of folks, accessories, airframes, robotics, regulation, you know, consulting pieces like that, those are always super valuable. Agreed. So with, with drones uh, and drone technology, uh, specifically payloads changing so quickly and, and always uh, new things coming out, how do you stay on top of that? How do you stay ahead of, uh, of the curve, if you will, so that you can explain to your customers what's new, what's up and coming? Yeah, it, that's a great question. And it evolves daily. Um, I just I am naturally the type like I was explaining when I was a kid, if I see something and I don't know how it works, I'm going to figure out how that works. And so that kind of transcends everything like we got. Uh, we have a drone that we're testing that I can't talk about right now, but there's a drone that we're testing at the shop and and it's sitting there. And, and I was like, well, this button looks the same as that button, but that button makes a different sound. And so I'm asking these questions of the engineers. And so I think Anything we can do to find those partnerships, the the DJIs of the world and and the smaller guys, the Teal Drones and uh, the uh, Inspired Flight that we can partner with and say, hey, look, send us a couple of units. Let us play with it. Let us just see see what it can do, A, to make sure it works for our, our folks and, and our customers, but also to give us an understanding of it. So that's a huge thing. And then honestly, just subscribing to as many email newsletters as possible. I've got three that have come in while, while being on here. So just kind of seeing what's out there, understanding a bit of it, and then also finding kind of those those like, hey, that'd be cool in three years type platforms, you know, the drone in a box thing, for example, I think it's really neat. We're having some discussions with folks. I think we're a little bit, we're a little far out, but this is the time for us to dig in, find a couple of solutions that we really like, understand it, and then we'll be positioned pretty well. So it's a combination of all those things. Hi. Cool. Thank you. So I always wonder, you know, we see new drones, especially this month and last month. It's like just drone galore. Every single manufacturer seems like they're coming up with something new. Um, and and I remember when when cell phones came became a thing. You know, smartphones. We had new versions, and you you went from one version to the next, and you would get a big upgrade. Not so much anymore, right? So um, are we at the level now where we've reached? You think peak? Uh, features and then everything we're added now seems kind of like a gimmick or or something to get you to buy a new drone or do you do you still see features that you're really excited about in drones that's a that's a great question um 
I I think when you so I'll I'll focus on the the blue round the the first blue round blue 1.0 as we've been calling it. I think that round is a perfect example of setting up platforms. Uh, I don't want to say to fail, but you look at that, you look at those five solutions, they're all incredibly similar. They were literally all built to solve the exact same problem. So I think we need to kind of get away. And I, and I love what they've done, what DIU has done with Blue 2.0. We've got a lot more, a wider range. We've got Wingtra and we've got Ascent on the same list. I mean, that that is what the industry needs. So I think I think the industry is going to naturally gravitate towards that, you know, towards the smaller group one systems, all the way up to group two plus systems and all of that. But I think when you focus, I mean, you look at an M2EA and an Evo 2, especially an Evo 2 Enterprise. I mean, I've seen that spotlight before. I've seen that speaker before. And I've, you know, I've even tried to kind of plug in the other guys into the other, you know, just to kind of see. So I think there are a lot of similarities there. But I, I think when you look at the industry as a whole, we've got a lot of a lot of firsts happening. You know, LIDAR, for example, that's really just now kind of taking off, pun intended. Uh, you've got the yep. the small implementation on the lemur, the downward facing ladder to help with positioning, all the way up, of course, to the big Phoenix, you know, mini rangers recon system. So I don't I hope that we haven't reached the peak. Um, you know, to be honest with you, the, the big dog in the room, DJI, they're they're gonna find something else to push out there and and they'll probably be the first to do it. Will they be the best? We won't know until the others give it a shot. So I think that we just need to kind of let them continue innovating, uh, maybe look past some of the uh, political things that are happening and let some innovation happen. And I think we'll, we're going to go through some ebb and flow. So I, don't, I definitely don't think we've reached the peak. I think especially as regulations continue to catch up with technology, opening up additional capabilities, cellular technology, 4G, BV loss. I think I think there's some cool stuff on the horizon. Yep. Exciting. So what, what makes a good UAS for public safety? Man, that's the secret sauce, isn't it? Um, easy to use, reliable, flies for a long time and gives them the imaging that they need. It, it just gives them a perspective that they wouldn't be able to get otherwise, uh, other than putting themselves in harm's way. I think that the the biggest need for them is we need to stop. When I say we, the manufacturers, there's a lot of smoke and mirror marketing going out there, a lot of BS floating around. My drone can do this. You don't need light for my drone. My drone can take a 3D scan in 10 seconds, and it's the best thing you've ever seen, and it's going to solve all your problems. No one drone can do everything, but there's a drone for anything. That's been my spiel since the very beginning. So I think it's just focusing on what their actual problem is, helping them along to not let them get sucked into this amazing multi-million dollar marketing campaign, which, I mean, if you go to my YouTube watch history, I watch all the videos because they're awesome, but it's really honing in on what that problem is. And then for public safety specifically, budget is a huge concern. If they can buy a Mavic 2 Enterprise Advance for 6,500 bucks and that fits their need, maybe they don't need the Evo 2 Enterprise at 8,700. Maybe they don't need the, you know, Skydio X2 or whatever. So budget's a huge thing, but it's really just reliability, a a platform that's going to be supported for a long time because these guys are not going to be able to get that iPhone the next year. They're not getting the new MacBook Pro. They're going to use that equipment until it's just not serviceable anymore. So those are some, those are some high points. I saw on your your websites um, that you have the Brink uh, drone, the Lemur. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that drone and why it's so different from, uh, let's say, the regular commercial drones that we've seen? Absolutely, yeah. So Brett Conda and I go way back. On God and I go way back as well. Uh, On God, he's... When he's watching this, he's going to be chuckling. On God is the reason that I have CEO in my email signature. We were at a conference. I I was advertising myself as the COO, and he goes, dude, you are the CEO. And I was just like... You're darn right I am. And so anyway, <laughs> shout out to On God. I love that guy. Their their system is unlike anything. And, and if you've and if you've met Blake or you've just seen their system, you really kind of get the same message. It's it's purpose built to solve a problem. It's super rugged. It does things that no other drone can do. Um, and it does things that other drones can do, but it does them better or differently based off of that customer feedback. The thing about the lemur that makes it so great is is the hardware is awesome. That's kind of where I focus, but it is built, it's born out of this need from Las Vegas Metro and these other law enforcement agencies that Blake and team have listened to. So it's sort of a culmination of cool, scalable hardware, but it mm-hmm. actually solves those problems. Uh, so I'm, I'm a huge fan of that platform. Cool. I want to talk about DJI. You brought it up a little bit earlier. Um, what, what's your take on what's going on with uh, DJI versus the world, I'm going to call it? That's a great way to put it, yeah. Uh, I think it's been... I think it's been DJI versus the world for a while. I just think that we're finally starting to see it because it's making the headlines and uh, and, and it is getting some traction and there's a lot of validity to a lot of it. I think at the end of the day, 
my personal, and of course the people that I deal with at DGI are not representative of, of the problems that people see with DGI. The folks that I deal with at DGI, incredibly passionate people that actually care uh, whether that's in their HQ overseas or that's here. Our, our rep is here in the United States based in DC, great guy. They're all very passionate. They're literally trying to innovate and solve problems and come up with cool technology and, and R&D is their biggest expense. Um, so I think that DJI does great things. I do think that we need to push for domestic solutions, but really for me, it's not a China versus the US thing. It's a, it's a, the name behind it. It's the, it's the purpose behind it, the mission behind it that really matters. And if you just look at the products that DJI makes, they're, they're doing things on purpose for public safety and utilities. And that, I think that speaks volumes. Um, they can do things that nobody else can do at that price. You look at the Mavic 2 Enterprise Advanced versus the Evo 2. Autel is another Chinese company and DJI has been doing the Mavic for a little bit longer and their cost is a little bit lower. Is that because they're just, you know, dealing with a, a, a less attractive P&L? We don't really know, but they're doing things that nobody else can do. And those initiatives, those projects, those products are solving problems. And so I'm, I'm still a fan. So do you think we should have um, regulation based on the capacity, the capability of the drone rather than the country of origin? Absolutely. I don't think the country of origin should should necessarily matter. I mean, look at the iPhone. It's made in China, but it's an American company. So I think, I, you know, if I had all the money in the world and if there's an investor out there, give me a shout. But if I had all the money in the world, I would start up a drone company, but I'm having that drone made in China. There's no question currently because people can't, public safety cannot afford to invest in the current domestic drone market. They're just too expensive. When you're talking federal money, of course, when you're talking federal contracts, absolutely. Military defense, of course, Please, you know, they have to use that. That's really why that market exists. Look at Teledyne FLIR. A lot of their stuff was born from their military side. It did really well over there, gave them the funds that they need to move it over. So I definitely think we need to focus on the capabilities of the drone. We need to focus on who's using the drone. Uh, you know, I. Handguns, firearms, bearcats, and, and law enforcement—they've all got regulations around them. Nobody's talking about who makes that the Glock. It's made in Austria. Mm -hmm. Big deal. It still goes boom, and it can still do damage. So let's regulate the use of that. Let's put some restrictions around it. Maybe multiple tiers, but it's going to be the pilot that has to go through those things. It's going to be the company that's operating that has to go through those things. So I definitely think we need to shift and look more at the technology, and of course the data. I'm an IT guy, so the data is a huge concern. Totally understand it. Let's focus more on that, where that data is going, what kind of blocks and, and restrictions we can put in place or guidelines rather than who shipped the drone or, or what tariffs we pay to get that drone here. So oh, I think that's a that's a great answer. So in response to uh, to drones that are made in China or that contain parts that are made in China, uh, they've come up with the blue SUAS or the blue drones version one. Uh, those drones tend to be quite a bit more expensive. Uh, I think pretty much all of them still contain parts that are made in China. What is your opinion about that initiative and how successful do you think that will be going forward? I think that the initiative as a whole, sort of that blue program through the Defense Innovation Unit, whether it's 1.0, 2.0 or 2.5 or whatever they're working on behind the scenes already, that alone is an, is an example of what we need to, what we need to do. It's, it's, the, it's a federal government uh, an agency within the federal government, the DOD and the DIU saying, hey, look, let's let's help the industry. Of course, selfishly, they need to create products for the warfighter and things like that. But just the fact that they've invested in that, that they've done that, it's it's a perfect example of what we need to do. As far as the, the blue platform and what that's going to do, those platforms are quite a bit expensive, quite a bit more expensive than their, uh, let's call them the foreign counterparts. And like you said, there, there have to be components inside of a made in China. I think that, like I said the, earlier, the blue 1.0, I think was... I, I'm glad that it was the first round. I'm, I'm happy that those folks were on there and that they made it. I don't think it did a whole lot for the industry. I think that you mm -hmm. had five platforms that were made to solve the same problem. And now you just flooded the market with five more options, more platforms that are also more expensive than the options that were already out there in the Mavics. I think it was good from a technology perspective. Obviously, Teal Drones is doing a lot of really great stuff. Parrot's doing a lot of innovation with the Anafi series. That's, that's great. And could that have happened without the blue platform or the blue uh, initiative? Probably, but it would have been a lot slower. So again, holistically, I think that's a great move. I think the blue 2.0 round, that's going to do, and it already is doing a lot for the industry. The fact that you've got Inspired Flight, Wingtra, Ascent, all of these different manufacturers, you've got a Wingtra system that's a VTOL system. You've got a, an Ascent that's a coaxial flying Pringles can, as one of my customers called it the other day. That's that's the innovation that we need. I think things like that, initiatives like that are going to do amazing things for the industry. And, and I can't wait to see what the next one brings. Um, 
so there's web 2.0 eth 2.0 ethereum 2.0 what will blue uas 2.0 bring? <laughs> well i think you know 2.0 i think is is uh, I'm, I'm referring to 2.0 as the one that just that just came out with the inspired flight the seven names that are on it i think that we you know we need to focus on that group two space um when i, when I say group two i mean like a matrice sized aircraft and speaking of weight and payload capacity so You've got that group one earlier with the the Golden Eagle and the Anafi USA, sort of your Mavic competitors. So it did give that market some options there. Blue 2.0 is, is kind of sort of in the 2.0, the group the group two space, sorry. Uh, but you have that Ascent, uh, the Spirit on there and things like that. So I think that 2.0 will bring more options to more corners of the market. Inspired Flight, for example, that's a fantastic solution to carry LiDAR. Now you've got a, a blessed Blue 2.0 system to carry your LiDAR system maybe over um, you know, federal lands over forests, over national park service, uh, a covered territory. So I think that's huge. Um, but I think it's still a little bit early to tell. It's like, it's like remote ID for me. I think it's everybody just, you know, hold on from a hardware perspective. Of course, there's a lot to talk about from a regulation perspective, but from a hardware perspective, just like nobody jump at it. Don't start buying anything. Just hold tight. Let's just kind of see what happens. Let the market settle down, see what actually comes of that. If you look at that blue 1.0 list, there's one, at least one manufacturer on there, Altavian. They ended up being absorbed by FLIR. Maybe we're going to see some more of that now that those manufacturers are getting that attention on 2.0. So I think it's too early to say, but I think the fact that the DIU has now identified so many different solutions from different corners of the market, I, I, cool things have to come from it for sure. And competition is healthy for everybody, and we need so much more of that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we'll see a lot of consolidation of companies in the future. This this reminds me of something that we saw in the uh, airplane industry with the, uh, the the sport aircraft. Uh, one year I went to Oshkosh, there was 120 light sport manufacturers, and then the following years there were eight or something like that. So, you know, it's going to uh, consolidate eventually because not everybody can survive. But competition is good. Now, you, you mentioned, you know, you said if you had all the money in the world and you could start your company, you would uh, go and produce in China. Uh, this is something I think that was a, a critique of the blue UAS, the 1.0, and I don't know about the 2.0, but do you think production capabilities here in the U.S. is going to be an issue providing all these drones to, I mean, these are large, large contracts if you think about it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think when you look at, when I, when I look at my customer base, that's uh, sort of everything I say is, is in, is in that regard. Cause I know my customers have lower budgets. They're not the DOI, although we do support the DOI and forest service, but uh, kind of going back to the original thing, it's I use Apple as a perfect example. Apple is a company that we trust, that we love. I mean, I'm I'm on a Mac. My video is going through a Mac. My IP address is going through a Mac. But I'm not worried about other than, of course, mal actors like you can have anywhere. I'm not worried about Apple watching me or seeing this video or or releasing this ahead of when you guys release it. So I think a, a big thing is the company that's behind it. And DJI has some work to do there for sure. Autel may have some work to do there as well. People fail to see that Autel is a Chinese company because everybody's focusing on that DJI name and the country of origin, et cetera. So I think that w when I say that if I had all the money in the world, I'm going to build it in China, it is because the cost to build in the US is still so high, rightfully so. We Skilled workers are expensive, especially in COVID. I'm, I'm sort of thinking like if COVID wasn't a thing and once raw materials hopefully settle down a little bit, like lumber was, you know, just massively blown out of proportion, it's still going to be super expensive. And unfortunately, most of our customers they can't afford that. Like I'm, I'm talking to our local county sheriff's office. It's not a big federal contract. It's he budgeted for, you know, X amount last year. He certainly can't inflate that because he just needs to buy a domestic drone. So there's certainly going to be uh, some time there for that American drone market to to get built and to to get more efficient and to get more cost effective. And I think the DIU things like the blue the blue program, I think will do that. They're getting the attention of lobbyists and lawmakers and. Hopefully the federal government can invest a little bit and, and help folks get a, a more cost-effective, efficient machine. But until then, I think we've got to figure out a way. There's got to be a balance between cheap or less expensive manufacturing and a trustworthy, reliable, safe system. And and I use Apple as that. You know, I, I'm using an iPhone in my pocket, but I'm not worried about it because it has the Apple logo on it. There there may be an opportunity for that somewhere. It's I'm certainly not projecting. It's not going to be us, but I hope it's somebody uh, that can that can kind of ride that that middle ground. Yep. 
I agree. So you talked about remote ID. Um, are you seeing a lot of customers that are worried about remote ID and uh, waiting to make a purchase maybe or having a lot of questions? I mean, we're getting close. We're a year away from manufacturers having to have remote ID in drones. Do you think the market is going to slow down a little bit until that happens? It's definitely a talking point. Uh, the majority of folks that I talk to are they are at least aware enough to know that it's coming. I, I have yet, and, and maybe my my guys have, but I don't know of anybody that's held off on purchasing because at the end of the day, we do work heavily with public safety and utilities. These folks need the drone and they need it now because they got problems to solve. So I think it's more like, yep. it's like the MacBook discussion we had before the cameras were rolling. I bought a MacBook Air three months ago because I needed it. I knew the pros were coming at some point, but I just like, you know what? I The best tool is the one that you have with you. So I think that's kind of the mentality that most of our folks take. Um, for public safety, though, it's definitely a, a discussion that needs to happen. So uh, if you're in public safety and you're watching this and you, you don't work with us, you should. But if you don't, make sure you ask these questions, get these other opinions to make sure that they're at least cognizant of that, that they can say, hey, look, our understanding is X, Y, Z about this platform that, yes, it will be scalable. Or maybe they have a plan to implement a, a third party uh, remote ID module or however that's going to look. So it's a conversation that needs to happen. I'm not aware of anybody holding off on purchasing just yet because it is it is still a year away. Um, so I think. I think it's a little bit early for that. Hopefully we'll see some software implementations happen or or with DJI, they've got such a huge SDK out there for payload and onboard. Um, Altel's building out their SDK a little bit as well. So I, th I think the options are going to be out there. And so far, it's it's just a talking point uh, from my perspective. Do, do you think we'll see remote ID solutions in drones before uh, September of 2022, which is when it's going to be required? I think that I have to assume so. Yeah, I think that we it may be an, er, an early testing thing. It may be a software implementation. It may be, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a remote ID 0.5 or something like that. But it's I think we'll see that. But I think if I were a manufacturer, I would not want to be the first one because then, you know, you're doing that the first. And now these guys over here know exactly what you're doing. So I think we are going to kind of see you know, like a new product launch. Obviously there's Mavic 3 rumors out there as I, as I'm told you guys know, but we haven't seen that official launch. They're going to hold that tight until that launch period so that nobody else can come out and stomp on them to do it that way. So I think they're going to look at this the same way. Unfortunately, I, I do suspect some of that's going to be selfish on the manufacturer side because they may charge for these modules or they may have an upcharge for it or whatever. Um, but I think it's going to be the end of next year is going to be very interesting to see, you know, all these firmware updates that come out, these modules that are available, uh, whatever, whatever that impl implementation may look like for, for that particular drone. Yep. What are your personal thoughts about remote ID? Do you think it's overreaching? Do you think um, some of the clauses are unnecessary or do you think it's much needed? I think it's needed. Uh, I, do I think that the current implementation of it is, is needed? I think it kind of depends on how you're operating. I think that anything we can do to, uh, I do take a, uh, there's a, a kitschy word for it that I won't use on a recording, but people call me, I'm, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. So I like to focus on the positives and the positive here is that the more data we can provide, the more information we can provide to somebody that needs to know what's going on out there. Is that the homeowner? If you think so, great. If if it were my home, I'd want to be able to see who that is. But I understand the need to, to protect that and, and the identification and such. So I think something is needed. I think this is a good first step. Uh, I don't know that it's the long-term play. It's kind of like the Part 107 and back in the Section 333 days. They're all baby steps. They're all stepping stones to get to this more mature program. I, I do think that the U.S. should do a better job of looking outside of the U.S. at Europe and, and other countries and continents to see how they're doing it and see how things are going for them. Uh, but I think remote ID is a good step. I think that for our public safety customers, uh, they're they're all pretty much proponents of it, being able to go out there and, and more easily identify, more easily deconflict an airspace and see what's happening. But I do also appreciate and understand the privacy concerns as well. Yeah, I want to I wanna kind of hone in on that one a little bit. I think that's what, probably one of the most controversial parts of remote ID is that the pilot location is going to be made public uh, to pretty much everybody, not just uh, law enforcement. Uh, what's your opinion about that? And do you think that's a big concern for first responders? I think it can be. I think that um, speaking specifically to the most sensitive operations, they're, they're by the time somebody intercepts that or, or accesses that information and takes action on it, There's it's either going to be too late or there's going to be things in place. And, and we even work with some agencies now that have a relatively secured or hardened area where they operate from. So I, I don't personally think it's as big of a concern on the first responder law enforcement side, you know, as a, as a, as an individual, as a citizen, I think that there is certainly some risk in saying, Hey, this guy's over here operating. Let's go, let's go mess with him. 
I don't, me personally, I wouldn't be worried about people coming and trying to mess with me. I, I wouldn't really be worried about any of that. I'm, I'm also better at educating folks. I, I have been approached before. My team has been approached before and we just educate. We show them the remote and say, look, here's, here's what we're seeing. Like we're looking at a, we're multi-spectral scanning a, a field over there. It's corns and soybean, you know, or whatever it is. So I think there's a huge education piece there. I, I love the conversations that are happening around it. Um, but I, I don't personally think that the the pilot location itself. I think in some of the initial implementation where you were getting a, just a way too much data about that pilot, I think there's going to be a sweet spot there. So I, I think we just kind of have to see how it goes. Um, and to the FAA's credit, I, I think it's the first step. We, we just kind of have to see what happens. And at some point, we got to just pick something. And I, th I think they've done a decent job of at least putting some infrastructure in place to, to provide people with the ability to do that. So remote ID, um, as it is currently, is sort of a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, do you think we need different versions to support um, a variety of use cases um, that come Absolutely. with drones? Yeah, I think that we need, uh, whether that's, you know, geographically in this particular area, it's a more sensitive area. So we need, you know, within this geofence, we need to be, you know, sending out more data or in this area, maybe, maybe not, you know, for if it's by, we have a nuclear facility down in Russellville. So maybe in that area, we just kind of keep it locked down so that citizens don't know what's going on or they can't intercept. So I think, I think it should be, the the problem that I have found and with regulations is the more granular the more granular they get, the slower it is to adopt. By the time they're adopted, something else has changed. So I think that's kind of why I think this initial implementation is the right move. But I definitely think even if it's uh, I think geographics is probably the most probably the easiest way to do it, the most logical way. In certain areas, it's gonna be more sensitive and and probably identifying that this is a law enforcement drone, kind of like the DJI's QEP program. Maybe something like that at a higher level where you can identify these serial numbers, these flight controller serial numbers, these pilot names, whatever, are sensitive. We don't don't broadcast any of that. I think those types of things need to happen. I'm, I'm just not smart enough to figure out how to really implement that to where it's going to be scalable and, and come out quick enough to actually provide good uh, before things may or may not go off the rails. So... Um, the drone industry is, is arguably one of the fastest uh, growing and developing industries we've seen in recent years. Now, if you compare that with uh, regulatory bodies and government agencies such as the FAA, uh, they tend to move slow. Do you think that the FAA is set up to, uh, to deal effectively with such a fast growing industry as the drone industry? I don't think regulations are ever set up fast enough to grow with, with an industry like that that's booming so much. Um, I think, you know, it's kind of like the cell phone implementation where the FCC had to kind of adapt and, and go there and the FTC for something. So I think, you know, regulations are always going to be slow. They're never going to move fast enough. But I do think that we are finally seeing regulations catch up a little bit. The fact that we have we've got some solutions that are BV loss ready and we're hearing about BV loss waivers being issued like that. The fact that the hardware is there, the the waivers are there now for certain people, of course, I know not in mass. We've we've got a couple that we've submitted and. And we haven't heard anything out yet, but um, I think the fact that we're seeing that in, especially in something like Beyond Visual Line of Sight operations over people, we have parachute systems, people can get waivers for that now. So I think they're doing a good job. It's all going to depend on what what comes next in the technology realm. I think 4G operations over cellular, all that kind of stuff is going to be, that, that's going to be the next milestone. Um, but I think that because BB loss is a thing, because ops over people are a thing, remote ID is now a thing. I do think they're putting that infrastructure in place to at least act more uh, quickly and reasonably than back in the three, three, three days and things like that. Yeah. Uh, you jumped actually right into my next question, which is about uh, BV loss capable drones. Do you see this more as uh, a demand these days? And and of course, the technology is not there because the regulation is not there either, really, necessarily. I know the FA is working on new regs. Uh, what are your customers asking f on that front? Yeah, so I think, yeah, there is definitely a demand for BV loss. I think that there's a there's a fundamental misunderstanding of, and it kind of goes back a little bit to my spiel about the smoke and mirror marketing and, oh, this drone's capable of covering this much ground. And, and that's great. But I think the main need is to not be bound by that, especially for public safety, utilities, construction, uh, border patrol, things like that. For us, I focus more on sort of the drone in a box solution where, where yeah, you can fly really far and yeah, you don't have to keep it in your line of sight, but with a drone in a box solution, we're talking fully autonomous. You don't even have to send that person out there. That person doesn't have to get anywhere near that site. We're talking to a couple manufacturers as it is right now, where you know a, a local cooperative here is looking at installing uh, drone in a box solutions at each substation. So when their system fires an outage or de detects an outage, it can fire off that drone and send it up. 
I, for me, that's where it all kind of comes together. That's the secret sauce. Flying beyond visual line of sight is definitely needed. We, we support the Texas Rangers. I, I flew on the Mexican border with the Rangers before, and it would certainly be nice to be able to have that little bit of extra range right there, especially at night and these, all these other conditions. So it's definitely needed for me, just from being a hardware nerd and supporting our customers' demands, it's going to be a drone in a box, fully autonomous, and, and maybe kind of going to Carrot's point earlier, it's integrating ground robots. It's integrating the spot robots where they can go out, obviously, fewer regulations. It's it's that culmination of autonomy that I think, you know, r- remote uh, unmanned lawnmowers that are that are mowing solar fields to spot robots that can patrol fences to, uh, you know, a Percepto drone, uh, whatever type of drone, whatever, whatever drone you're into that you see the marketing of taking off and doing it. It's that collective holistic approach that I think for me is most exciting about BV loss and all of these other technologies, including cell and, and 4G communication. I want to I want to quickly circle back to uh, to remote ID. Now we know that the FEA is not an enforcement agency, and we know that a lot of people, especially within the FPV community, aren't all that excited about uh, drone ID. Uh, do you think that people will comply if the FEA is not really able to enforce remote ID? And also, if if the FEA isn't doing it, uh, who should be uh, enforcing drone regulations? You think? Boy, that's a that's a good question. I, I think you know the FPV community. Uh, I have a soft spot for them. I I, I know mm-hmm. a lot of them, and we support a lot of them. So I, I think I think they will comply. I think that um, I, I'm talk, speaking in mass, of course, you're going to have the folks that that just don't do that, and, and they may have their reasons. Speaking to the enforcement piece, that's something that we deal with a lot right now. You know, you look at counter drone solutions and DJI Aeroscope, and we get a lot of requests for that, and then we have to explain that like you can't like you can see it, but you can't do anything about it. So. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know that I'm educated enough to, to have a, an opinion on that, but I think that overall, I think that once once people see the value of that, once they see it working, once they they hear, oh, you, oh, you went out and just went on, a, on an RID flight, nobody can't, nobody hurt you, nobody, nothing happened. I think once that spreads through the community, of course, with outreach and education from from folks that that have a say or or at least a following, um, I think it'll I think it'll pick up naturally. But I think there are going to be there's going to be those pockets of, of uh, pushback. I was going to say unrest. That's probably a little, that's probably a little aggressive, but some pockets of pushback and, and yeah. that we need that, you know, that's, that's, we need that feedback to go to the FAA. And, and a lot of those folks, of course, probably didn't get in on the NPRM and they didn't speak up ahead of time. And so now they're just now hearing about it because now it's finally affecting them. So I think we're going to see some of that. And I think the end result will be majority of folks complying and it actually doing, doing some good, but it, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So- so you, you see and talk to a lot of different companies. Who out there should we be uh, looking at and paying special attention to that you think is really doing something different in the industry? It's a great question. Um, you guys weren't messing around when you said you, you, you were going to come prepare with good questions. I like it. Um, <laughs> I would say I'm, I'm big on drone in a box right now. Uh, it's, it's, I, I've had multiple calls with it. So I, I would say... Uh, first eyes out of Tyler, Texas. I would absolutely connect with them. Uh, Ryan is is pretty active on social media. I would definitely talk to them. They've got they have one of the more um, cohesive and robust approaches to things. They're not really too closed in any one way. They're drone agnostic. They're open to the reseller network. They understand the need for support. So that's pretty huge, and not just in drone in the box, but for everything. Um, another one that I found pretty interesting is Percepto. Um, a, a hood is, is the gentleman that I've been working with over there. They're doing a, a very interesting, they're taking an interesting approach where they're looking at it from an ecosystem perspective, which I, I appreciate both sides. Of course, from a, uh, a business perspective, I would like for all the drones that I've sold currently to work with whatever solution we push out. But I do think there's a need, especially for agencies that don't have a drone program yet. Percepto is doing something very neat in the drone in a box solution where they just come in and provide you with everything that they need. So that's very interesting. Um, I'm pretty partial to the guys at Ace Core. I think they, they're they probably some of the most passionate uh, individuals that we've met in the industry. So I'd, I'd love to see them on here and kind of get their take on it. Uh, Jort and Luke over there are great guys. Um, I'm sure I'm, oh, Alti UAS, big fan of Alti, South African company making fixed wing, uh, VTOL solutions, very kind of a, a sort of a first eyes thing where uh, very robust, very regimented, very clear communication, clear branding. They clearly understand their customers' needs, which I, of course, immediately am drawn to. Uh, and they just make beautiful, functional aircraft. Um, so those are the ones at the top of my head. But for anybody that I didn't mention, I, they didn't give me these questions ahead of time. So if I forgot anybody, I'm sorry. But those are some of the ones that I'm that I'm super passionate about. 
Well, that, that's awesome. That's actually companies that we don't hear about enough, I think. So I'm, I'm glad you're mentioning them. Sure. So um, what is the current drone tech out there that excites oh, you man. right now? Um, uh, it's, I still feel like a little kid in a candy store. It's all super exciting to me. I think that the... I think the, the adoption of LiDAR is really incredible to see. Um, I have since, and, and I, I owe the, or the industry owes credit to more than just DJI, but when that L1 announcement came out, I have never received that many requests for LiDAR from public safety. That Do I think the L1 is the solution? Not necessarily. It just depends on your, your needs and it's the right tool for some people. But the fact that that piece of content, that that marketing came out there and going after law enforcement, it was really cool to see. So I think Watching how agencies, utilities, et cetera, are going to use LiDAR now that it's more attainable, super, super um, interesting to see and kind of watch evolve. I'm big on on seeing that data, like, you know, the, the drone itself is super cool, but being able to see the, the total solution. And so kind of going along that, we had a meeting with a local uh, customer of ours who does construction and grounds and uh, commercial development. They're they are talking about taking, they, they bought an M300 with a P1 and they are also looking at LiDAR and they bought a spotlight because they just want to play around with it. But um, they're looking at taking their RGB data, elevation data, uploading that to Caterpillar uh, heavy equipment and then using that elevation data to stop while they're digging a pool in somebody's backyard so that the excavator, the bulldozer knows not to go too far because there's a house right there. I'm, I'm going to be going out in the field and watching them do all of this. I, I, a lot of this isn't really new technology, but the fact that it is so attainable that a, a medium-sized, relatively uh, you know, humble, humble construction company here in Northwest Arkansas can actually afford to do this and, and use that data, that's super, super exciting for me, excuse me. Um, I think things like the lemur, I think drone in a box is really exciting. Um, I think Skydio is doing a lot of really cool stuff. Anybody that knows me knows that I, I uh, it's a love-hate thing for me with Skydio because anybody that doesn't support resellers and support the the need for support through reseller networks is I question that because nobody can do it all. Um, but their technology speaks for itself. Uh, the autonomy, the 3d scanning and, and all of that, the ecosystem approach is super neat. So that's just kind of my, my nerdy data dump there. I know I didn't really attack any, any one thing, but it's, it's just all every I like working from home a lot because I get so much more work done because when I, my office is in the back of our shop. So when I walk in, I walk past the workbench and I'm like, well, I, okay, I have to play with this now. So my backpack goes down. I tell the person I have to call them back later. So I, I'm a little ADD when it comes to that. So ask me anything specific, but those are my thoughts. It's fun for sure. Yeah. Uh, you, you talking about uh, Skydio brought up uh, a question on my part. Uh, I think it was what, four, five, six months ago, maybe that DJI started selling drones directly, commercial drones uh, with the M300 directly to, uh, to enterprise customers, kind of circumnavigating the, uh, the resellers. Uh, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, there was, uh, there was a lot of, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of uprising going on in our, our industry then, and especially within the VARs. I, I still don't fully understand why they do that, mainly because I personally don't think they sell a lot. I, I pretty much know for a fact, based off of folks that I've talked to, just to kind of query and see how things are going. I don't think they sell a lot doing it that way. Uh, you, you look at mm -hmm. our business, the, the majority of our business is on a net 30 plus. I mean, we've got some net 60, net 120 customers. Trust me, DJI is not extending terms to anybody. So I, I just question, I think it was mostly to get more visibility into pricing. I think we're seeing... You know, now that the M300 price yeah. can be advertised, that for us has provided a ton of value. I do think it's a little bit funny because the retail price of an M300 combo is $13,199 and they have it on their site for $13,200, which is like kind of a beat them by a dollar. But I think yeah. that anything we can do to get that visibility out there and provide that information ahead of time to customers is is hugely valuable. The majority of our sales calls are, hey, I saw I saw this product, but I, I have to get a price. Can you tell me what the price yeah. is? And we're like, yes, yeah, it's, it's $20,000. Okay, thanks. Like I had to do all of this to get it. So mm -hmm. I think that visibility is really important. I personally didn't feel as threatened as some others only because I know how our business operates and I know how DJI operates and those don't really go together. But I'm sure that some you know prosumers or well-funded hobbyists may be out there swiping a card uh, and paying for DHL shipping from China for an M300 through the DJI store. I, I just don't think that it's it's as big of an impact to dealers as some thought. Yeah, I think if uh, if DJI's purpose was to create more transparency and ba ba basically being able to advertise those prices so that we kind of keep everybody on the same page, that will make sense. Maybe uh, if that's the case, it's something they should have communicated more clearly probably. Um, Agreed. 
If you look at the landscape in the enterprise drone world and you go back to the days that you started and you compare that to new uh, to now, what would you say has like been the biggest trend or the biggest change that you've witnessed in the years that you cater to enterprise customers? It's a really good question. Uh, I'm actually planning a little video to kind of do like a throwback and have like an M300 sitting next to my original, one of my original drones. So it's, it's super cool to kind of think through. I think that going all the way back, just how integrated everything is. I, I know that sounds like a cop-out, but you look at, you know, the Autel smart controller, the DJI smart controller, the fact that, you know, behind me, I've got a hard case that within 45 seconds, if I was a first responder, I could open it up, power it up, fly, go out, see what's going on, capture all this data, all without having to plug in a cable, set up a tripod with a black pearl analog video screen and kind of get my, you know, my cool, uh, you know, VAS uh, antennas pointed and such. I think the integration that the, the, um, the cohesive approach, the ecosystem approach, the fact that you can now have multiple drones on one remote, the fact that you can, uh, you have all these different attachments, all integrated through USB and USB-C and all that. For me, it's the integration. It's the, it's sort of the turnkey drone program, drone, drone package, if you will, that I think is, is probably the biggest benefit that that's come other than just thermal getting more cost effective and payloads getting better and things like that. So, so for me, it's the integration. It's having so much technology in such a small, easy to use, quick deploy package. Cool. And to go along with that, actually, as a follow-up, drones are getting more complex, really. They're easier to fly in a certain way, but there's so much going on behind the scene on the software and everything. Uh, what are you doing to try to help your customers learn to fly so that you don't just provide the product and then send them on their way? What, what, uh, what do you have available? Yeah, it's a good question, too. I think uh, the lemur is a good example. Uh, the lemur is it's kind of a it's an M300 in its own world in that it can be overwhelming because you have an analog video feed. I, I watched on God's thing. I mean, you saw the analog, the snow, the blood, the salt and pepper view, as some people call it. So you've got this perspective that looks old and that looks uh, hard to use, but it's actually better in a lot of ways. But it does take a special type of person to fly that. It takes dedication and time to actually fly the unit and understand it, uh, you know, learn the sounds of it. I know when I flew my first, my very first drone, every second I thought it was crashing because of just the way that it sounded, but that's just the way drones sound when it's windy out. So I think anything that we can do to um, give them that technology and let them spend time with it and actually focus and train. Brink uh, requires a three-day training. That's a perfect example. We also, with a lemur, we provide tiny hawks. We, we get, uh, you know, three, two or three turnkey little tiny hawk systems. And we say, hey, you're going to fly the lemur with our trainers. They're, they're bring certified trainers. I'm going to send them out to you. Don't f just hold, keep the lemur looking all cool, perch it up on your shelf and fly these tiny hawks for a couple of weeks. Get out there and get that time with it. Um, and then with the M300, for example, kind of going back to my analogy, the M300 can be overwhelming to fly because you have the 360 obstacle avoidance readout. You have all these heads up displays and your home points flying across your screen. Why is that there? Am I even moving? Is it moving the smart track? So we offer on-site training. So one of my guys will go out spend the whole day with the agency to actually show them how to use it. Here's how you deploy it. Things as simple as tightening your arm collar all the way, but not over tightening. Here's, you know, put your legs up in the case this way so that the collar doesn't hit the prop. Here's how the weird funky alien arms unfold and you're going to get twisted up and here's how to do all that all the way, of course, to here's how you switch payloads and in-air handoff and all of those things. So training, um, finding, equipping the right customer with the right equipment. If, if we, the customer says I have no drone program and they ask me for an M300. I just, okay, let's, let's go get some coffee. Let's just talk about this for a second. You know, we DJI makes it difficult. We used to be able to include like a DJI mini as a trainer or, or whatever else that might be. We can't do that anymore because we can't discount certain products. So um, that makes it a little bit more difficult, which is why we now offer some of that training. And we say, okay, if this is your first drone, we're going to come out, we're going to bring one of our minis. You're going to fly that for a day. And then we're going to do this. So it's just kind of consulting with the customer, getting a good feel for their experience level. If they're overconfident, bring them back down a little bit. If they're underconfident, give them the tools that they need to kind of get to that confidence level to where they, the end goal is to trust the hardware and know that it's going to work, but you got to know how to react to certain things. So. I love it. Cool. I want to I want to shift gears a little bit and go back to uh, to Skydio. Uh, they were, I think, pretty much the first one that came out with an uh, autonomous flying drone. Uh, what was it back in 2018 or 19? Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was 18, actually, with the the original one. Um, how valuable do you think a self-flying drone is for first responders and also commercial drone pilots in general? And where do you think uh, it offers the most value? So uh, autonomy is a big it. it, it 
sort of that that's sort of the word that encompasses all the warnings that I've said about smoke and mirror marketing and such. I think an autonomous drone is is huge. I think a self-flying drone is not nearly as valuable for a police officer as it is for a survey company so that they can just the survey company can just send the drone out, let it do its work. They're there monitoring everything's good. Public safety scenes are so dynamic. I was a firefighter for a long time. The minute mm-hmm. you pull up your first in, we got flame shown on the office side. You go back to your truck and start pulling line. And you're like, oh, now we got smoke. It's just so dynamic that having a drone that's going to do all of this by itself, I don't think is very scalable. However, the the autonomous components that assist the pilot and the piloting more safely, you know, Autel's obstacle avoidance, DJI's obstacle avoidance, of course, Skydio's autonomy, that is a very important piece. It's, again, giving that pilot the tools they need to kind of get that confidence behind the system and, of course, just make it operate natively more safely, whether that's to enable uh, additional flights within a waiver or a COA, et cetera. Um, I think autonomy is definitely critical to a successful program, and a successful drone. I think the self-flying component, I think, is way overhyped for, you look at Skydio, they're pushing public safety super hard. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know of many police officers that are just going to send their drone up and let it let it fly. Now, if we're in, you know, 2060, 2070, and you can just hit fly us out of your backpack and, you know, you've got your, your laser gun and you're jumping out of your flying. Okay. Maybe that, maybe, maybe then that'll work. But in today's environment, the environment with which, you know, the budgets that we're operating in are for today, I don't, I don't think the money's well spent there. I think finding that balance kind of doing the Autel and DJI implementation of giving those heads up displays, but allowing there to be mm-hmm. deviation for that dynamic scene. I think that's really where the autonomy comes into play currently. Yeah, I believe that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the Chula Vista Police Department, uh, close to San Diego as part of the IPP program, I believe they were using uh, Skydio drones uh, for a while, and I believe that program has been uh, discontinued. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, One thing that always wondered me is like, if if you're a part 107 pilot and you're the pilot in command and you send a Skydio or any other autonomous drone, I mean, it it doesn't have to do necessarily with Skydio, but if you send a self-flying drone up in the air and the algorithm decides to navigate a certain way to try and uh, avoid hitting something, but it still hits uh, that object. Who in the end is then responsible? Is that still going to be the pilot in command? Or are we now looking at the drone maker who programmed the drone uh, to avoid things in a certain way? Yeah, I, I don't have an answer to that, but that's definitely, you know, risk is a huge, a huge concern. I mean, I think in the end, it's going to it's going to fall to the pilot in charge because currently the technology is not to the level. It's like self-driving vehicles. If I'm driving my Tesla and I happen to look down and check a Facebook post and I miss an alert or, a, you know, I don't, I don't own a Tesla, I've never driven one, but I miss the alert that was supposed to tell me the human to intervene in the technology that's not quite fully self-driving. That's my fault. I think it kind of follows that same suit. I do think kind of going in my 2060 sort of like, uh, you know, ready player one type mentality, I think that by then surely we're going to have some solutions in place for that. But because we're not there and because we need the ability to react dynamically in our scenes and, and all of that for public safety specifically, it's just kind of a gray, it's a gray area. It, it for even just flying a Skydio, I, I bought an S2 myself just to play around with and kind of do some demos with. And it is terrifying pushing the stick forward and flying it through woods. And you're just kind of like, he's got one eye closed, but you know that if it crashes, it's, it's on you. And, and that's just the way it is. So. So I got a few questions for you. Um, before we started recording, you mentioned that you were onboarding your wife or uh, someone at your company was onboarding your wife in the next room. Um, how is it yeah. working with family? What are the intricacies there? Yeah, no, I, thank you for asking. She will she will be uh, redder than red uh, when she watches Uh-oh. this back. But um, no, it's okay. I Trust me. I put her on the spot myself. She works for me now. I can do that. Um, it's, it's awesome. So my wife and I met in Orlando. Uh, we met at work. I was the IT guy. She was the new employee. I got to set up her computer. She got the fastest one in the shop. Um, and it's, it's interesting. I, you know, we, uh, a lot of my wife's friends and family and, and some of mine as well have been like, Oh, like you're going to work. Oh, you're going to work together. Okay. Rest in peace. Okay. Well, let us know when things change or whatever. But for us, it's just, we're together all day anyway. She's super passionate. I think for me, it's kind of, it's a proud moment, of course, that she's now, the dream is coming true, but you also get this as a business owner, you just, and, and I'm, I'm assuming you guys have, have the same thing. It's, you just, it never feels like work. It just doesn't, it never feels like work. You're just building, you know, th- this company is my retirement. Uh, I don't drive a, a big fancy car because I try to keep as much money in the business as possible. And, and she's now in that with us. And she's always been that way supportively. Um, she's the one that pushed me to do the business and she's the one that puts up with me being gone at night, but it's definitely, uh, 
it's a strange feeling where it's, we're, uh, what are we five days in now? So, uh, we'll see, maybe, maybe I'll be on a podcast next year, maybe, maybe a one year anniversary and we'll see how it's going. But, um, she's incredibly passionate. She's so smart and, uh, I'm just, I'm super proud to have her on staff. So hopefully she doesn't kill me. <laughs> I don't. I doubt she will. Um, and there are a variety of positions in your company. Um, I guess my, my question would be, what are specific traits you look for in employees when you look to hire someone? Yeah. So we, uh, I'll preface, we don't have an HR department. So what I'm getting ready to say may, may need to be edited out. Women are such good employees. Uh, I, I have two, three now, but I've had two amazing women on staff, Skylar and Sydney. They are, they are awesome. I think we need more holistically, whatever, however you identify, we need more technically skilled individuals. I dropped out of college. I barely graduated high school. I'm doing okay. I'm making it a day at a time. We need passionate people. We need people. We need kids. We need students. We need humans that find what their passion is. It doesn't have to be drones. That could be computers. It could be truck driving, whatever. We just need, I, I am not a parent by design, but we need to somehow find a way to motivate people to do what they're passionate about. I know that you may not make all the money in the world that you might want, but you're going to do something that you love. Um, traits that I look for, detail-oriented in our business. I mean, I don't know if you guys watch our Instagram, but my guy, Brad, he's one of our technicians. I mean, the guy's got an M300 open and there's just like, I walk by the bench. And I just kind of like walk slowly because I don't want to blow a speck of dust in there. So we need that detail-oriented approach to things. Uh, very analytical uh, just easy going. I, I try to cultivate a, an environment where it's just glass half full type of thing. Like, okay, we messed it up. Let's, let's just fix it. Mm-hmm. Let's figure out what the customer needs. You know, that's our fault. Here's a tumbler, you know, whatever the, whatever that approach might be. Um, I try to take that approach and, and look for those traits in in my employees, but just overall detail oriented passion. I love passion and just, uh, you know, honing in on your craft and, and it's, that, that's going to speak for itself for sure. As it should. Yeah. So rumor on the street is that DJI is going to come out with a new drone uh, not too long from now. Uh, are you excited about that? And if so, what are the features that you would be most excited about in the new DJI drone? Yeah, so I was just reading uh, some DroneXL.com the other day, and I think whatever, if if the rumors are true, I think that they're they're doing some pretty amazing stuff. You know, you got the, the micro four thirds and all these things. I think if that happens, I think it's definitely needed. I do, I question... DJI's approach to some product launches and some products that they create, like, you know, is it going to be, we don't know if it's going to be called a Mavic, whatever it is, you know, where's the Inspire, for example, they've got these, these long standing product lines that they seemingly, and I, this is not inside information. Trust me. I usually find out the day of the release myself, so I don't know anything, but seemingly the Inspire 2 is just kind of out there. It's still a great platform. I love the Inspire 2 passionately. My Inspire 1 back when I was just a service provider was great. So I question sort of what that, that total package solution looks like you know, you've got the minis and the airs and the Mavics and the now the inspires are gone. So now you've got the matrices, et cetera, and the Agris. So I think my whole thing is making sure that they hit each level of, of budget. I think whatever this drone is going to be, it's going to be heavily on consumer side, at least initially, I would presume kind of like the Mavic two was, we had the Mavic mm-hmm. two zoom and pro, and then I uh, forget how many, eight months, a year later, we had the Mavic 2 Enterprise. So if we see that happen, then I'll be super excited because then we're going to see some additional features, I would assume. But um, I think it's it looks amazing. Long flight time, rumors of a mechanical shutter. I mean, now we're now we're getting somewhere. So I think it, it'll it'll kind of depend on how heavy they hit the sort of that cinematography. You know, is this the Inspire 2 replacement? We don't really know because it's probably not going to be called an Inspire, I wouldn't assume. So um, I, I'm excited about it though. I love, I love new products. I was excited about the action too. Holy smokes. That thing. I have no need for that. I'm not going to sell any of those, but I bought five of them because just, you can just <laughs> stick them in places. It's I mean, just cool stuff. I'm such a nerd. I, I love all of it. So. Yeah, totally. And DJI is, is coming out with, with cool stuff pretty quickly and they have been over the last couple of years, but I hear what you're saying. I mean, and I know a lot of people share that sentiment that uh, what happened to the Phantom line, what happens to the Inspire line and those drones, even though they might be replaced with smaller foldable Mavic uh, drones, I think, I still think there's a, there's a spot for a Phantom and an Inspire. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, sorry, I saw you getting ready to talk here, but one thing too, is I love the approach that DJI is taking on the enterprise side and actually publishing that EOL, EOS, EOP schedule that, that to me is a perfect example of them slowly understanding that these these industry folks, utilities, public safety, they need to know, hey, how long is this drone going to be good for? Not because I want the latest and the greatest, but I didn't know how long am I going to be able to get batteries for, et cetera. So I think as long as we continue to see that evolution, 
on the enterprise side, we can all just be super excited and see what's coming later uh, thanks to these consumer releases. So, Oh, I was just going to chime in that I've been dying Hi, for a Phantom 5, but who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, isn't it that one that I've seen floating with the interchangeable lenses that has oh, been floating around for four years? four years? I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. Man, we're on, we're, on Phan- yeah, we're on Phantom 12 by now. I don't understand what's going on. Yeah. Haya told me that the new drone is going to be called a Mav Inspire. You heard it <laughs> here first. But that... <laughs> yeah. No confirmation on no, that don't... one yet. <laughs> yeah, we should start a rumor. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, that's a, a great transition to my very last question. We always ask our, uh, cust- our, our viewers what uh, is their favorite drone. So what is your favorite drone to fly? Oh, that's a weighted question. Uh, my favorite drone to fly is the Matrice 300. No question. It's just, uh, it, it does so much and, and you have so much information in front of you yet. It's so nimble, et cetera. It's, it's probably my favorite drone to fly. I would say sort of the, uh, not really an underdog, but one that I'm, I'm still getting used to and, and flying a lot is the Evo 2 Enterprise, which obviously the Evo 2 has been out for a long time, but I love Autel smart controller so much. DJI, if you're watching, please listen and just make a bigger smart controller for just please do that. The controller on that is so good. It feels so good. So much information on that one single screen. So I think the Evo two enterprise and the M 300 are kind of my, my two that I go back and forth with the most. Um, I just, you just, the M 300 is just so cool. looks like an alien and it's got that. The, I like, I love on the FPV camera, you can see the props. So when things are getting real crazy, but you can still see them. I just, I love it. So M 300 for me. Awesome. Well, Chris, this was very insightful. Love uh, geeking out and talking about all the different tech. Uh, Definitely a pleasure having you talking uh, on the show today. And for everybody out there, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching if you're watching us on YouTube. And if you want more information and more about Chris, you can find him on LinkedIn. He actually posts in very active, puts a lot of different articles out there. And then you can find him online at uvt.us. And then if you enjoy this show, please be sure to subscribe and share on social media. Uh, We put new shows every single time. Tuesday. So uh, we'll get notifications and everything. But uh, Chris, thanks again. And thanks everyone for watching and listening. And we'll see you guys next week. Thanks, guys.